Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. People's lives are massively changed by brain injury and the meaning of that is often kind of threatening to someone's identity. I can't do that anymore. I'll never be able to do that anymore. Intervention there is to help people to be doing more of the things that make them feel who, who they want to be, make them reconnect with themselves and also addressing those kind of meanings, those sort of threats to identity family members are being pulled in different directions that there are elements of the relationship or the person with the injury that are more or less unchanged and yet moment to moment there are things that are that are odd that are disorienting hello and welcome to on a good day with me elizabeth callahan and me julia ajay this is the podcast which delves into brain injury and its impact on all involved It is our pleasure to introduce Dr. Fergus Gracie today. Fergus comes to us with a huge wealth experience in working with people after brain injury and their families. He's currently a senior lecturer in the Department of Clinical Psychology at the University of East Anglia. I first got to know Fergus a few years ago and have had the pleasure of being involved in some of the research Fergus has led. As well as his role at UEA, Fergus has practiced as a clinician working with adults and children, and he is a member of many other organisations and groups leading the way in rehabilitation after brain injury, including the UK Acquired Brain Injury Forum, otherwise known as ACABIF. Well, Fergus, that's quite a history of working with people, both adults and children after brain injury. With so much experience in this field, could we start with an explanation of the role of a neuropsychologist and how they can help someone following a brain injury? Great question. And thank you for inviting me in the very generous um, introduction. Yeah, so role of the clinical neuropsychologist, a really, really important role given as and I don't need to, to tell you that priorities for, for, for family members of people who have experienced a stroke or a brain injury are often around the sort of psychological, cognitive, emotional, family, sort of personality changes that, that people experience. So a clinical neuropsychologist is someone who's trained in the UK, usually trained as a clinical psychologist first, done the doctoral clinical psychology training, then specialised in neuropsychology. Um, and so brings to the to the clinical work a sort of expertise in relationship between the brain and uh, behavior, if you like, in everyday life. And in brain injury services, clinical neuropsychology can, can appear kind of anywhere along the uh, along the sort of pathway from sort of early, early days in hospital, kind of acute phase and post acute kind of rehabilitation. Um, contributing to assessment, particularly assessment of cognitive functions like attention, concentration, memory, um, visual perception, and that, that's a key role. Um, it, importantly though, the 
having that kind of foundation in clinical psychology means that the clinical neuropsychologist will also bring that wider perspective. So understanding things about family functioning, about people's social context, about psychological things like experience of identity um, and those kinds of things. So increasingly, as we move into kind of rehabilitation and community support, we bring in these other ways of thinking. So we're trying to blend what's going on cognitively, changes, strengths, limitations, with who's the person, what's their family, what's their context, what's important to them, what does all of this mean in the grand scheme of things, and what might the future look like for this person and those around them. So I think we just bring that sort of cycle way of sort of psychologically integrating and understanding someone. A another key, my final point on this, the other key element of that is sharing that kind of understanding with the wider multidisciplinary team. So your OT, speech therapists, physios and others in the team can be doing their focused rehabilitation on a particular area, taking into account someone's emotion, meaning, identity, family context. So there's the individual, the work that the neuropsychologist will do, plus there's the sort of framework of understanding that the neuropsychologist brings to, to the rehabilitation effort. So that's brilliant, Fergus, and really kind of brings it all together and um, explains it in a really good way. What would you say are the kind of common emotions and feelings that people after a brain injury experience and how do you feel they can best be addressed and supported by their families well that's another another huge question and I, and, and I might come back to you both and just sort of ask about your own experiences with regards to sort of emotions and what and what's helped and of course coming from sort of clinical kind of traditional sort of clinical practice the kind of first way in which people make sense of emotion experiences in terms of say like mental health diagnosis so a lot of the early work in this area has been kind of finding out the extent to which people experience things like depression anxiety post-traumatic stress that kind of thing and generally speaking the research finds unsurprisingly that that levels of those kinds of symptoms are elevated amongst people who have experienced a brain injury roughly a third of people typically will have some kind of level of clinically concerning sort of symptoms of anxiety or depression a bit less for post-traumatic stress maybe 15 to 20 percent but that's only one way of talking about emotions and if we if we think more broadly about how we experience emotions as human beings that's a really really broad palette of experience so I think it's important also to recognize very specific kind of subjective ways in which people experience changes beyond the sort of broad categories of sort of depression and anxiety. So in that respect, research, qualitative research, research that involves interviewing people in a way to try to really understand how they've experienced something, um, also throws up uh, a lot of interesting things about people's experience of, you know, bewilderment, of loss, confusion, of, of a sense of being both yourself and not yourself simultaneously of having that experience of identity change and many, many other things besides lots of very deep, unique and personal emotional experiences. 
and, and I guess in our work, what we've tried to do is to try to blend that a little bit so we can understand, like if we're wanting to help people to not develop clinical depression, you know, or a significant anxiety disorder after their brain injury, then I think we really need to listen to and understand those really unique, particular, personal and subjective um, elements that people experience and really get under the skin there and understand those things and how over time that might lead to to people becoming you know more clinically depressed for, for, for example so that that was that's been some of our thinking around kind of how we help people um, from a psychological therapy point of view so starting with the idea that people's lives are massively changed by brain injury and the meaning of that is often kind of threatening to someone's identity. I can't do that anymore. I'll never be able to do that anymore. Those meanings then reverberate in the person's life. Well, if I can't do that anymore, what's the point of trying, etc. And people might get into kind of negative loops, repeated negative loops over time that lead them to become more withdrawn, more isolated, do less, connect with people less, all of which are really important things for our mental health. So over time, you could see how mental health can kind of go downhill over time. So intervention there is to help people to be doing more of the things that make them feel who, who they want to be, make them reconnect with themselves, and also addressing those kind of meanings, those sort of threats to identity. Are there other ways of seeing it? Are there other ways of um, making sense or finding meaning in this for people? in doing that kind of work that the hope is that, that we kind of create the conditions under which people kind of get a little bit of the old me back and at the at the same time kind of discover what the new me might look like and hopefully with that comes a bit of positive emotion a bit of kind of curiosity and a kind of will to engage in things in the future um, so that again the right kind of structured support can help people explore develop and find new meaning and positivity and what's kind of technically called kind of growth or benefit finding, meaning making, that kind of thing going forward. Well, I think I certainly can really resonate with that, that word of I can't, which yeah. I've heard a lot actually over the last sort of weeks and months as, as the kind of insight and realisation over what they used to be able to do, you know, with my husband, Paul, it becomes clearer, you know, further along their journey, it's, they, they, they realise they have that insight that they can't do that anymore. And, and it does become that kind of that negative spiral a bit. I also think, Fergus, what's um, very powerful with what you're saying is the fact that you are taking this very wide look, both in the the connections and the the essence of who someone is and also over time um, after their brain injury and all of the people around that person as well so that really stands out to me and I know that you have a number of different strands to your current research which is really exciting and I wondered if you could tell us something about your current work with families and why you think it's important and I'm particularly thinking about your work through the UK Acquired Brain Injury Forum. With the um, Anchor Point, which yes. is the, um, the sort of subgroup within UK um, Acquired Brain Injury Forum that Charlie Whiffin set up. I, I guess I've, I've come at this kind of the, very much the long way round and, and 
all the time, you know, many years ago when I was working at the Oliver Zangwill Centre, I was very sort of interested in identity and individual therapy for people. But what, whenever I looked at that, it always led in the direction of the person's context. So the very first bit of work that we did around understanding identity, and we did a sort of a mixture of interviews and rating scales with, with people who'd had a brain injury about a sense of change in identity, it was really clear that identity is experienced in the world. And that's kind of obvious. I mean, I was interested in all these kind of mechanistic psychological processes that, uh, that I was kind of interested in at the time. But actually what people talked about was their sense of who they are in a particular context. Um, and over time, I've become sort of increasingly interested in that and my work looking at identity and well-being and how people achieve sort of wellness in life post-injury has increasingly incorporated um, that social context. But part of that is about community groups and connections that people have. And part of that is about kind of family life. So I was really excited to be invited by Charlie Whiffin to, to um, look at the literature on family experience following brain injury. A few years ago, we worked together, we, we, we searched the literature to find all of the good qualitative research that we could find about family experience and to draw that together into a single kind of way. You know, what does the research tell us about, about family experience? And we, and we published that for last year. And I guess it's really interesting because I think what you see in families really mirrors also what you see in the person who's experienced the injury. And of course, services are all very much set up to the individual who's had the injury, but the family experiences and particularly the people at home with the person, their experience is just as significant, you know, if we're thinking about the psychological needs. We're both nodding away furiously here, Fergus, as you can see. Um, absolutely. What, what do you think the practical applications of that research are? How, how is this going to, to help us all? I think that at the very heart of, of, of how rehabilitation should be, how brain injury services should be, is a depth of understanding that means that when you have the conversation with the person with the injury or with the family, that there's that nodding, there's that, here's someone who gets it. And time and again in, in services where we've worked in this way, which is about getting to the heart of the sort of psychology of it for people, the meaning of it for people. And always starting from that point of kind of, how's that affected this person? What does it mean from them? I think that as a starting point means that you, you create that connection with the family and with the person with the injury, because they have that sense of trust that you've got an understanding that you're on their side, that you're think you're trying to understand it from their from their perspective. So I would say that a focus on the qualitative research and a retention of where does that take us? So the the the, the paper with with Charlie, we we sort of brought it all together in in this kind of um, trying to make sense of the ways in which family members are being pulled in different directions, that there are elements of the relationship or the person with the injury that are more or less unchanged, that still feel like the same person or the same role or the same thing. And that's tremendously orienting and kind of anchoring. And yet moment to moment, there are things that are 
that are odd, that are disorienting, that are confusing, that are upsetting, that are disconnecting. And there's, there's a risk with sort of psychology and psychiatry and kind of medicine to kind of try to categorize things and kind of lump things into kind of, you know, that family's well adjusted, that family's poorly adjusted or whatever it might be. But actually the, re the lived reality is much more complex and dynamic. You know, it's a real mixture of good and bad, moment to moment. Um, and so what we brought from that paper was this sort of framework that kind of tries to do a little bit of justice to that complexity and nuance, those tensions and strains. And fundamentally what came out across the studies that we included, it's about 30 studies that we looked at, was the incredible, and I'm gonna ask you about this in a minute, the incredible amount of work that individual family members are doing, mental, emotional work, moment to moment, to keep on that balance of seeing the positive, not dismissing the negative, but finding a creative way of working with that, not losing hope and just going to the, it's all pointless kind of place when things do seem pointless and futile and, and too overwhelming. That complexity of just walking that thin line and finding that line. Um, yeah, and, and, and the incredible work done by families and the creativity that people bring to that, that process. Well, that's what the qualitative research was telling us when we felt that resonated with our experience with people clinically as well. And we've seen that in some of our other studies as well, Julia, that I know that you've, that you've kind of helped with. I think it's a complex, messy thing. And I think understanding that nuance and complexity is first base in our clinical work. How does that sit with your experience? It sits very strongly with my experience because I certainly think when in my position, I felt heard and understood, um, it has helped me in my role of being wife, uh, support, carer to my husband, to Hector. So it's hugely valuable, I think. And in fact, I was lucky enough through some of Hector's rehab to talk to um, a psychologist myself at the Oliver Zangwill Centre as part of his treatment. And it still sits very strongly with me today when she said to me, well, you're, you're obviously taking a solutions-based approach, which is great. And I didn't even know what one of those was actually at the time. And I think really what she was saying was you're getting on with it and you're working, at, working it out and you're, uh, you know, you're still around and you're, you're having a go, which I think is probably my own definition of what solutions-based is now. Um, but, but I think that is hugely valuable because it affirms um, that the challenges are there, um, but that you are doing your best to deal with them. And I think the other thing from what you said, Fergus, is that, of course, over time, it's a very changing landscape around. We're ageing. The children have gro are growing up. Work's changed. Life's changed. And none of that is static. So all of those things that you might have thought at one point you had a handle on, actually, they change around you. So it still remains important, I think, to be heard I'm with Julia and I probably took a very solution-based solution um, approach with Paul. I had 
two very young children at the time and it was very much come on get on with it let's you know the children still got to be fed got to you know, keep things quite normal for them even though their father you know, was in hospital for a long time and then when he came out wasn't wasn't him he's you know made great progress but that was a very different dynamic having him come back the relationships are evolving and he is you know rebuilding those connections with the children and with me as well and you know I think you were talking about identity and the identity of um, a brain injury survivor obviously massively changes but so do so does the people around and particularly for the partners it's that realization that you are taking on more responsibilities taking on a lot of what they were doing and having this caring role which you know I I don't necessarily like the kind of carer role I you know Paul is pretty independent but at the same time there's lots that he can't do and I suppose for me it's adopting that slightly new identity as well yeah I mean there's there's so much sort of complexity in, in all of that change over time you're saying Julia you know family aging life the life cycle we move through and family life changes and roles change you've got that dynamic changing landscape within which then um as you're saying Liz that kind of negotiating those changes in 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 role what's so what's helped because so I like this the way that you talked about the solution <laughs> solution focused approach um you know, it's like a psychologist, we're great at kind of naming back to people things that they've just told us are using some slightly different language in some way of kind of psychologizing it, essentially. What have you found helpful? You know, what has helped you? Because there's so many things and there's not like, it's not like there's a perfect answer, you know. It, it's not like there's, there's a single sort of disease process that can be kind of treated and then it's gone away. I'm really interested in what you what what's what are sort of helpful conditions for you guys to keep going with all of that complex and demanding stressful kind of work that's a big question I love this we're turning around (laughs) I did warn you I might do that (laughs) yeah no it's brilliant um well I think that for me this helps you know these kind of conversations and Mm. I think that being able to express my own creativity has been something that's been important and possibly that I've realized more um you know as time has gone on and that keeping that essence of myself and working out what some of that is and um you know nurturing that and for me um just doing the podcast and getting that up and going is part of that creativity as well as um you know sharing these what I think are very important conversations and you know that's also been born out of networks of support I think and connections and those social connections with family with friends open and honest conversations um, and you know being involved in my local community and us being involved as a family and seeing places where Hector is connected as well and I think that's the essence for me. Yeah I concur with with a lot of that actually Julia I have found talking about the situation, having honest conversations 
which really kind of started actually when Julia and I were connected and suddenly there was this person that just understood some of the issues and challenges that I was experiencing and was able, you know, we were able to talk on a different level, but also, you know, other friends and family who may have some experience of somebody with a stroke, maybe, you know, parents or grandparents, and even if they haven't, if I'm honest, just being, just talking about the situation and mm-hmm. just kind of getting it off your chest has been kind of a great therapy. And, and, you know, talking does this wonderful thing of helping you, the, the individual, work things out in their head. So I found that helpful. I found writing helpful as well. Um, and also just doing things for myself as well still having my own life, still, you know, having those, that friends and family, that support as well around me and making that time to see them. And also for Paul as well, making sure that he is still seeing his friends and family and maybe giving me a break at times. (laughs) It can get full on. It can be really full on sometimes. So having that, that space away has been really important as well. And obviously the whole self-care and the mindset work as well is incredibly important. Mm. I'm also aware that many people who will be listening might not have those opportunities that we've talked about. They might not have those family or friend structures around them. They might not find it easy or have opportunity to connect in their, in their own communities. Um, And obviously some people are living alone with a brain injury and, and not with someone. But how do you see, you know, the role of partners and family and friends in the rehabilitation of people after brain injury? What are the kind of key aspects that you think can help the the person who's had the brain injury the most and the whole unit around them as you've been talking? And that's a really good question. And it's a and it's a complex one. And my my most recent clinical work has been with children who've had a brain injury and their and their families. Well, this is in real, you know, that this is a, a real challenge. And, and, and I think it, it resonates also in for, for family members of, of adults who've had an injury where the, the kind of traditional or if you like, the kind of starting point has been, OK, the importance of family and rehabilitation, which has meant that in, in some approaches to rehabilitation, family is sort of brought in in a way not from the point of their own needs, but from the point of view of supporting the rehabilitation process. So from the point of view of, oh, it'd be really helpful if you could remind them to do this or encourage use of this, et cetera. That makes real sense, you know, and in child brain injury rehab, there's some evidence that if, you know, obviously the child is at home with their, with their parents and parents have a key role in supporting child development and all that kind of thing. So tweaking that and and putting things in place that that are that are helpful and that support rehabilitation within those kinds of settings within that kind of family context um, is 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 obvious and makes sense and 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 is likely beneficial. The problem is I don't need to tell you guys this, but the problem is, of course, that's on top of all of these other things that you've just been describing that you're having to do: change of role, additional responsibilities, etc., and the and the stress of it all more new stuff that you're then going to have to kind of find time to implement or that could result in 
challenging interactions with, with the person who might not be that interested in doing the things that the rehabilitation team have decided are important. So it's a, it's a real complex and messy one. And I just go back to that understanding the context. Who are the people here? What, what does all of this mean for them, for, all of, for the whole of the family? The next point that I would make would be about really understanding the specifics. So we can go from that kind of general point of the, of the meanings of things to then talking to people about very specific things. So what does it mean? Someone with a brain injury might have a very particular idea, for example, about their expectations of how they should be able to remember things, for example, because I always had a really good memory. I shouldn't have to write things down. So you can end up going from these kind of broad meanings to these very, very specific hot moments in rehab or recovery which all relate to one very particular thing, which is as simple as kind of writing a to-do list or writing a reminder. And the same goes, I think, in terms of family. So I think understanding generally where people are at and how people are affected is, of course, important. But it's also really important to understand what are the day-to-day things that are challenges, trips, hot, hot moments, if you like, the particularly steep uphill parts of the day. And really unpicking those and, and, and how much of that can, can be practically supported, how much of that is about kind of transformation of meaning, about kind of what that means to, to someone. But maybe there are other ways of looking at that that can make that hill less steep for everyone. But I think that there is the risk that, that families become kind of sort of proxy rehabilitation professionals. And we've just got to be really, really careful and mindful of the systems and the people in the systems as rehabilitation professionals, when we're prescribing or advising, it, it kind of needs to be done collaboratively. It needs to be done in relation to kind of what works in the detailed sort of machinery of day-to-day life, moment to moment. Fergus, what I found was um, we had um, a level of the clinical psychology when Paul was in hospital at Queen's Square having his rehab. But then coming out into the community, it, it wasn't as obvious. We didn't have that. You have the kind of the physical side. You have, you know, the physiotherapist. You have the occupational therapist. You have the speech and language therapist. But then actually going forward, some of the longer lasting effects, especially if there's been a trauma attached, is required through that clinical psychology. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, we're a sort of a, a, a more scarce resource, clinical psychology, clinical neuropsychology, and even more scarce resource. And we're forever having to sort of justify uh, our existence and kind of presence at different points of the rehabilitation trajectory. I think guidance would suggest that services should have clinical neuropsychologists uh, uh, available. That's not always the case. And I think, as I said before, I think that's partly about the delivery of interventions so if someone's becoming more depressed or has sort of post-traumatic stress which needs treatment that that's kind of one thing but I think importantly I think there's huge efficiencies where a psychological understanding of a family and the person with the injury from a psychological point of view can help prioritize and make more efficient the, the sort of physical and practical interventions so would you do you feel that there needs to be a bigger role for a clinical neuropsychologist in the community? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I've had the privilege of working the two main services that I've worked in have been neuropsychology 
led that that the model of the of the approach is kind of neuropsychological rehabilitation and multiple different professionals work to that model and feed into it so your occupational therapist has skills around practical adaptations around understanding maybe some physical aspects also like fatigue um, that kind of thing physiotherapists are focused on motor recovery but the neuropsychological rehabilitation model places those into that frame of sort of identity meaning family story family narrative so you're all working together to help people have more experiences of success, of joy, of connection, of acceptance, of feeling me again, or being excited and hopeful about new possibilities rather than sort of pessimistic and closed off and fearful of the future. So I think it's trying to find the way in which those really important ingredients of of rehabilitation across all of the different domains of recovery in you know, a language, motor recovery, uh, return to meaningful and productive activity. Yeah, how to shape that whole endeavor so it, it maximizes the meaning element. And, and one of the things that I think can happen, we sometimes see this in rehabilitation is if you start from a list of impairments, and, and I've got a real bugbear with this, one of the key things things that it's important to do is to understand all the changes that someone's experienced, the cognitive and physical and communication sort of deficits. But if you organize your rehabilitation as a massive long list of recovery or, or retraining or strategies for a list of things that don't work well, the, the that everyday life of that person is pretty grim. Like every day, implicitly every time you start something you're reminded of what you can't do and so of course addressing the problems is really really important but if we solely focus on a long list of problems without looking at meaning without looking at identity without looking at family life one people aren't going to do it first of all I think you have problems with adhering to that which is I know the, the few very minor things that I've had had to do physio for just doing my daily exercises is a big ask so when you've got a whole list of cognitive emotional physical communication things it's people are just not going to do it in their daily lives it's hugely challenging so we have to find that chink of meaning that gives people hope encouragement excitement connection when you have that then you know that's you know that's your steam train that's where you can start hooking things in and in some of our work, um, Georgina Berger did her, her, her doctoral thesis looking at community connections and how people have been using sort of community groups, people with brain injury to kind of uh, help with, with their rehabilitation. It was really interesting. So interviewing people who are engaging with things like surfing, cycling, community gardening projects. When you find, when people find that moment of connection, they're finding that they're doing something like what their physio told them to do, but they're doing it through connecting with others, through engaging in something that's kind of life-giving and human. And I do think that a sort of holistically minded or neuropsychological rehabilitation type approach should be integrating, you know, the full range of human emotion, including those wonderful positive emotions, because that's the outcome that we're looking for. We're not looking for absence of impairment. I mean, that's great but it's not very exciting. 
you know we don't all live realistic life. all realistic <laughs> after a brain injury yeah all realistic but we don't mm. live our lives according mm. to oh great today went well because nothing bad happened you know mm. that that's a that's a sort of a fairly bland and kind of slightly nihilistic kind of view of life and and I don't think it's fair to say that that's how rehabilitation professionals view, view life, but I think there are some models of rehabilitation that are, that are rather more aligned to that kind of impairment, what we call in acts of pejoratively in, 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 in the kids' brain injury service, sort of list-wise rehabilitation that just sort of feels like a drag and nobody really wants to do compared to that kind of integrated sort of formulation-based rehab, which is all about meaning and living and, mm. you know, the potential for positivity despite huge challenge. Definitely. And, and tapping into what they enjoyed pre-brain injury and using that as, as a kind of therapy and, like you say, building a more purposeful life. And, and looking at the positives rather, what you can do, I will say, well, what can you do? You know, don't focus on what you used to be able to do. Let's look at what the next few years are going to look like, the next few weeks, months. You know, what, what do you want to do? And it is switching that up, isn't it? And you both spoke about that in, in terms of your sort of linking back, looking back to kind of, well, what do I do? What do I know? I know, you know, I know writing, I know talking, I know creativity and what becomes important. Well, we could draw on that to kind of share with others. And it's kind of finding those little threads um, in, in, in the work that we did with, with Charlie and with Caroline Ellis Hill. We talk about these narrative threads. What are the threads that are, that, that are not torn and severed and broken? What are the threads that are still there? And even where the injury has been really catastrophic and there are lots of impairments, there are still threads there, you know, beliefs, values, um, characteristics. And it's kind of how you... How you, how you use those threads as a kind of basis for that kind of more positive journey forward. One um, example that has just come to mind from hearing you talk, Fergus, was just yesterday. Hector had uh, gone out for a walk and came back and I think was the most excited and joyous that I had seen him just, you know, for a long time. And he had found and listened to the podcast of Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. Now for him, he struggles to read, but actually he's always been interested in politics. And, you know, Barack Obama is, is a wonderful role model for us all and particularly for him and, and music as well. So, in fact, when you're talking about those threads, that simple act for him drew those two things together, I'm sure. And he was so excited mm. that he on this and was listening to it and was so inspired by it in a way that he could access because mm. I think it's so about accessing things isn't it and and that coming back to that creativity I think it's also a newness of yes not looking at the fact you might not be able to read a book about them now but actually listening to that having come together in a new way through podcasts so it was really exciting to see that's amazing Julia yeah that's really lovely isn't it and and I can see in your face as well and capturing there's something kind of infectious about that mm. um that kind of joy or positive connection when people discover that you know that's the kind of uh that's a wonderful thing to experience as a rehabilitation professional when you're when you're working with someone and I can only imagine as a family member when 
you've been through lots of dark days, when you have those moments of, of joy and reconnection, how important they must be to uh, keeping the motivation going or knowing that they might even be for those who've not had them yet or maybe in the early stage of the, of the process to know that despite all the negativity and challenge, there's, there's potential for those really important little moments of joy. And fulfillment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Fergus, obviously all families and situations are different. Are there any sort of, say, three top nuggets of wisdom and advice you would give um, our um, listeners to take away in dealing with um, the situation and with any trauma that they may have faced? Well, that's a big one. I think you. I think. I think you've kind of partly answered it. It when you were talking about finding what worked for you, and 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 in that conversation we were just having about connecting. I think one of the things that that's a real challenge, and this probably this is a kind of part of the focus of the research that we're doing. And, and Julia, I know you're sort of contributing to that as well, which is about connection with others. And I think I'd probably say top of the list. Find people you can talk to, find people you can talk to where there's a component of recognition or understanding. So you can kind of feel listened to. And like, like you were saying, Liz, kind of in the act of talking, you start to make sense. And in the act of being listened to, you start to make sense. And you start to move things around. You don't have the headspace to move things around in your head. You kind of need other people to kind of hold the stuff for a minute for you so you can kind of sort it out in your head. And I think those connections are massively important. The other thing that I'd say is that that social connection isn't purely about, for example, talking to a person or sitting in a room talking with other people. And it might that might be for some people, but the importance of doing and, and connecting while doing, I would say is another key element. So reconnecting, with others through through activity, through being part of something, through through part of a project. So the conversations can happen as and when, but many people and and I would say possibly perhaps more men than than women do their talking through shared activity, through through a shared project or a shared activity. And I think so I think that connection with other people and talking and also not just focusing on the talking but also on the activity and the connection with with community, with groups, with projects. And that what also links in there is the importance of, of making a meaningful sort of contribution. All of which is really challenging, isn't it? With the time, the extra time that you, if you're a family member in, in a caring role. So I think your other point about, uh, that you made Liz, which is about kind of giving yourself permission to kind of have your own time and space and finding a way of doing that as well. Tremendously important. And then the final bit, which Julia, what you were talking about, which is having those moments of positivity, the sort of stepping stones uh, to keep you going and, and give you optimism for the future, not just as one-offs, but as actually things that can be built on and, and rekindling those, um, those connections and threads. So I don't know if that was three things, probably not. It's probably about nine. <laughs> it's been such a joy to have you on, Fergus, and just talk through those. And I always find it, like we were saying, it's talking is a kind of therapy. And I feel I've gained so much from this conversation. Well, thank you for, thanks for inviting me along. And, and uh, as you said um, before we were on, on air, Julia, th these are things I'm passionate about. So it's a pleasure 
to talk and, and a pleasure to share and, and also to kind of hear how some of these ideas resonate with with you both and the and the, and the challenges and joys that you're uh, you're living with um so thank you very much it's been thank a pleasure and we'll put um we'll put those links that you spoke about um in the show notes as well and have all that information there for our listeners that's great so it's, yeah anchor point that the organization for for supporting and and understanding and working with and connecting people interested in families um uh, after brain injury thank Amazing. you very much thank you and thank you our amazing audience for coming and tuning in we really really appreciate it while you're here we would love a favor this is a new podcast so please help us to spread the word by sharing on your social media channels perhaps take a screenshot of this episode and tag us we are on instagram as on a good dot day please follow us and twitter on a good underscore day Please subscribe if you haven't already. And how about leaving us a five-star review? We would really appreciate it. Until next time, have a very good day. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.